Good to see you again tonight. Let's turn our Bibles to the book of Hebrews. To the book of Hebrews. Appreciate so much being with you. Um, such an honor to be asked. And there's a lot of people that you could have asked come do gospel meetings. Um, that's not lost on me. Uh, I hope everything that's been said has been encouraging to you, um, inspiring, and it'll build you up uh, to do great things for the Lord. Uh, sounds like you're already doing all those great things anyway. I uh, just uh, see so many good brethren here and uh, uh, love love what I hear about you from other people uh, that uh, are in Auburn and whatnot. Uh, keep up the good fight. Um, Hope that I can come back and be with you again sometime in the future. Um, I do love the fact that y'all do these week-long gospel meetings. I was telling somebody earlier that uh, you don't see as many of those out there anymore. Uh, but, you know, we've got, the problem is we've got so many things distracting us right now. You know, we've got so much as far as the, uh, technology and electronics and hobbies and entertainment and all that. I mean, you've really got to try hard to stay focused on the things that we need to be focused on. Uh, and so I think having these week-long gospel meetings sometimes is just a good time for us to really think about those things that are so important. Not that having a five-day gospel meeting is not bad, you know, is a bad thing either, but uh, I appreciate y'all doing that, and, uh, and I hope that you'll continue to see the value uh, in, in having teaching from the Word of God. Uh, to say living in the first century and being a Jew uh, was hard, uh, that'd be an understatement. I mean, just about every neighboring nation during that time looked at the Jews as a troublesome people, which had been the case for hundreds of years prior to the coming of the New Testament times. Uh, but then they were also a constant thorn in the side of the Romans who at that time were occupying Palestine. So it was bad enough being a Jew, but if you were a Jewish Christian, uh, that would have been a lot worse because not only would you have been ridiculed by the pagans that were surrounding you, but fellow Jews that denied Jesus Christ would have looked at you as a turncoat, making your life that much more difficult. Uh, what happens today when people forsake the world to become uh, Christians only to then find themselves facing ridicule and persecution? Well, a lot of these people are just going to keep fighting on. It's going to make them stronger. But then other people are going to decide that Christianity is just not worth it. And so they decide to go back to whatever culture or whatever lifestyle they happen to be living beforehand that provided them with so much temporal comfort. Uh, one of the strongest temptations for Jewish Christians during the New Testament days was to forsake Christianity and then to go back to what they were used to, that being Judaism. And so it probably shouldn't surprise us that we do find a letter in the New Testament addressed specifically to Jewish Christians in an attempt to encourage them to rise uh, against the difficulties that they faced and to stand true to the hope that is their calling. Uh, whenever we talk about the book of Hebrews, we're told oftentimes in Bible classes uh, and other uh, times that this letter, the point of this letter is the superiority of Jesus Christ. Uh, that's not the point to the book of Hebrews. The point to this letter is don't go back. Don't give up. And where the superiority of Jesus Christ falls into this is that that is the reason why you don't go back. That's why you don't give up. You don't give up because Jesus Christ is superior to anything and everything you could ever go back to. The Hebrew writer spends the first ten and a half chapters of this book guiding us through a series of contrasts. And he begins it in this way in verse 1. He says, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son. And so we immediately see that there's this contrast between how God used to speak His will to men and how He speaks to men now. 
In past times, God spoke His will to prophets through visions and dreams, and these men that God spoke to were faithful, and they were true to the message that God delivered them, though that message is oftentimes fragmented. But none of these men could occupy or compare to the message that has now been delivered through the Son of God Himself, Jesus Christ, the one who would usher in the complete and full revelation of God. Who is this Son of God? He goes on to say in verse 2, "...whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. And He is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of His power." And when he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. That brings us to the first major argument that the Hebrew writer makes in this book. And what he's going to do is he's going to compare Jesus Christ to angels. Now, angels in the Bible were highly regarded by all the Jews as servants of the Almighty God. The angels were holy, they were majestic, they were full of dignity. You know, if an angel appeared in his glorified form in this building right now, we would be in awe, we would be shocked. I would even say we'd probably be terrified. We'd probably all be falling down flat on our faces before all that majesty and all that power that we're seeing before us, trembling in awe and fear. In fact, in Old Testament Times, men would sometimes, because of that fear, actually fall down and worship angels and attempt to offer sacrifices to them, much to the angels' displeasure. And if an angel during that time spoke a word from the Father, not only would there be fear on the one receiving that message, but you could be sure that every single thing that that angel said was going to come to pass. And so what the Hebrew writer is doing is he's taking all that that we know about angels and he's saying, let's see how these guys, let's see how these angels who you Jews highly respect and you praise and you adore, let's see how they compare to Jesus. In verse 5 he says, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. God never said that to any angel, did he? And again I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. God never said that to an angel either. In verse 6, And when He again brings the firstborn into the world, He says, And let all the angels of God worship Him. Here we see that as mighty as these angels are, they were commanded to worship Jesus Christ. And then in verse 7, And of the angels, He says, Who makes His angels winds and His ministers a flame of fire. Here we see that as mighty and powerful as angels were, they're merely ministers. They're merely servants to God. But who is Christ? Verse 8, But of the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of His kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. And the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will also be changed, but you are the same. And your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand, while I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? So on one hand, we have these magnificent, powerful creatures called angels 
who were ministers and servants. And on the other hand, we have Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, Lord over all, the very creator of both heavens and, the heavens and the earth, and the angels of God are commanded to worship Him. In verse 14, he says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who inherit salvation? What we find here in this first chapter is a Hebrew writer telling us very point blank that Christ holds a far greater position than angels could ever attain to. But now that's, that's useful information, right? But what's the point? I mean, what's the point of making this comparison? It's one thing to show a contrast, but what's the point behind the contrast? The point to this is in the first four verses of chapter 2 where he says, For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. The point of making this contrast between angels and Jesus Christ is that if every single word that was spoken by an angel received a just penalty, or some of your translations will say uh, a just recompense of reward, how can we possibly escape if we neglect the message that is brought by Jesus Christ, the Son of God Himself? That's the point. He's saying there is no escape for those who forsake the Word of Christ, who has been uh, uh, compared, is found to be uh, vastly superior to angels, if rejecting the words of angels was never gotten away with. That's the point. That's the point of even comparing Christ to the angels. The Jews respected angels respected their words, respected their might. So lest they think that leaving Christ and going back to something else would not have any effect on their souls, he's saying you better think again. Because there's not one word spoken by Jesus Christ that is going to come back empty. But now what the Hebrew writer is going to do is he's going to take what might have been viewed by some of the Jews hearing this as a potential hole in that argument. He's going to take what he anticipates might be seen as a flaw in that very reasoning that he's just made in comparing Jesus Christ to the angels. Here's what the objection uh, might have been. Okay, if you're saying that Christ's position is so far greater and more superior to the position that is held by the angels of heaven then what was Jesus doing here on earth as a man? I mean, the Jews would have looked at this like this was a huge flaw in the argument. Why? Well, if, if you had to think of one sin that the Jews struggled with more than anything else in the Old Testament, what do you suppose that would have been? I mean, we could probably name a few, but wasn't idolatry pretty much at the top of the list for the Jews? And isn't that part of what worshiping a human being would have looked like to a Jew? like a form of idolatry. So if Jesus really is divine, like the Hebrew writer is saying here, if He is so far superior to the angels of heaven that they would actually worship Him, why did He become a man? 
that would have been looked at as a potential objection to the argument that the Hebrew writer made in the first chapter and the first four verses of this book. Well, the writer takes what on the surface would have appeared to be a flaw and he turns it into this very powerful and emotional argument that's based on truth. And the way that he does this is by quoting Psalm 8. And he quotes Psalm 8 beginning in verse, Hebrew, uh, verse 2 of, of Hebrews, or excuse me, beginning verse 6 of Hebrews chapter 2. Here's what he says. For he did not subject angels to the world to come concerning which we are speaking, but one has testified somewhere saying, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you're concerned about him? You've made him a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, have appointed him over the works of your hands. You've put all things in subjection under his feet, for in subjecting all things to you he left nothing that is not subject to him. What this verse is telling us is it's telling us God's original plan for mankind, to put all things in subjection under man's feet. But now look at that last part of verse 8. Because he says now, we do not yet see all things subjected to Him. And we know why this is, right? The reason that we do not see everything subjected to us is because it was God's plan for that to be fulfilled in Christ. See, the reason that Jesus came down from His heavenly abode to this cesspool of sin and became flesh so that it was that He could die for every man. And it was going to take him experiencing a human life and to be put to death and to be raised again in order for mankind to be saved through him. That's the point that he's making there in verse 14. When he says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. You see, this was no flaw. Him becoming a man, that, that wasn't some kind of defect. Christ had to become a man so that He could taste death for every man. It wasn't angels who needed help on this earth. It was man. This is no weakness in the writer's argument. This was the ultimate sacrifice that had to come down from heaven itself. And it is the reason why you and I are no longer subject to bondage and fear because Christ came to give Himself to those who share in the faith as well as the humanity of Abraham. And you know why he's pressing this point so hard for this particular group of people, for these Jews, for as well as us, is so that we might come to understand this sacrifice that he made for us to its fullest extent. How could you ever think of giving that up, of going back, of forsaking Christ for something else after all that he went through for me? How could we ever think of something like that? That almost sounds pretty crazy to think you would go back from something as wonderful as Jesus Christ, doesn't it? Well, angels were impressive to Jews, and that's why I think he makes these points in the first two chapters of this book. But the Old Testament um, also mentions to us some very impressive individuals as well, right? If you had to come up with the, probably the most 
famous person in all Old Testament history. The man or woman that the Jews admired more than any other person in all the Old Testament. Who would you suppose that might be? I mean, probably several people come to mind, right? I mean, David, Elijah, Moses, Abraham, Josiah, King Ahab. That's just to see if you're listening. Right? No, that guy was a nut, man. No, no, that, there's a lot of men we could go to in the Old Testament, right? To prove uh, um, how, how uh, great the, the, the Jews admire some of these people. But to prove Christ's superiority in chapter 3, he's going to compare him to Moses, right? And, and Moses, we would all agree, was just about as highly regarded of an individual in Hebrew history as you'll ever find. I mean, this is the guy that led them out of Egyptian bondage. He was a lawgiver. Moses was the epitome of all meekness. And so what he's going to do is he's going to say, okay, let's now take Moses, who you Jews love and admire so much, and let's see how he measures up to Jesus Christ. And he's going to make two points for why Jesus is so much greater than Moses in chapter 2. First of all, or chapter 3. First of all, in Hebrews chapter 3, in the first two verses, it tells us that both Jesus and Moses were faithful in all of God's house. I mean, there's no question whatsoever about the faithfulness of either Moses or Jesus Christ. But the writer goes on to say that Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses because Jesus built the house and Moses was only a member of that house. And so, of course, the builder of the house is always going to be uh, worthy of more honor than the house itself. I mean, when we drive by a, a, a beautiful home in, in, in a rich neighborhood and, and we admire all these houses we see, we don't ride by a house and say, oh, that's a, that's a wise house right there. You don't do that. That's just the house. No, we, we admire the guy that built the house, right? We admire the architect, the, the contractor, the guy that put the pedal to the metal and got that thing the way it is. As great as Moses was, he was only a part of the house of God. But Christ both designed and built the house, and therefore Christ is worthy of more glory because of that. So that's the first thing he's going to compare it to. But the secondly, suppose within this house, suppose inside this house, there's a faithful servant, and then there's the owner's only son, who is also faithful. Now, Moses was a faithful servant in God's house. According to Numbers chapter 12 and verse 7, one of the most faithful. But see, Christ was faithful as a son, as God's only son over the house that he built. So in their temptation to forsake Christianity for Judaism, those Jews were about to put their faith in the servant over the son. But the Hebrew writer warns them in verse 6 that they are only going to get to stay in God's house if they hold fast to God's Son, through whom is their confidence and the boast of their hope. Now what's the point of that? Okay, again, useful information. Here's Moses, here's Christ, here's why Christ is so much better. But what's the point of even making that comparison? Here's the main point, and it begins in verse 7 of chapter 3, and it continues on through the end of chapter 4. The point is this. Moses was indeed a great leader. I mean, he led Israel out of bondage. And, and those Israelites, they had so many spiritual advantages under Moses' leadership, right? But as great of a leader as Moses was, what happened to those Israelites in the wilderness under that great leadership? They fell. Why'd they fall? They fell because of unbelief. 
here's the point of this comparison. If those under Moses, who was a lesser servant of God, fell because of unbelief, what will happen to us if we become guilty of unbelief when we are led by the Son of God Himself? That's the point. And you want to talk about a heinous sin? That, that's a heinous sin. That's it. Giving up and, and going back when we're led by Jesus Christ, the Son of God Himself. And so the encouragement to us in chapter 4 and verse 1 is this, Therefore let us fear if while a promise remains of entering His rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. In other words, be diligent that you enter this rest so that you don't fall away because of the same example of disobedience that we saw in those Israelites. Those are the two arguments, the angels and the Moses, that cover most of four chapters of this book. Now, I want to look a little bit at chapters 5 through 10, and I want to cover three more arguments. It's only going to take me two hours, so bear with me. No, I'm just kidding. It's not. It's, this is going to be a normal sermon length, I promise you. But I do want to look at just three arguments in chapters 5 through 10 that I think are very important for what we're trying to accomplish here in this lesson. We're going to walk through them very quickly for time's sake. But the three arguments that I want to make, and there's more arguments in chapters 5 through 10 than this, but the three that I want to make is I want to look at the high priesthood, I want to look at the tabernacle, and let's look at the sacrifices. We're going to talk about these quickly, I promise. But let's first talk about the high priesthood. Who was the first high priest in the Old Testament? It was Moses' brother Aaron, right? Aaron was the first high priest ordained by God. And this was a system that was designed by God in which there could be a mediator or an intercessor between God and man. But we know that this is far from a perfect system, right? I mean, there were flaws in the Levitical system from the very beginning that it was ordained. From the very first day that Aaron adorned those linen white garments, do you know what every single one of those Israelites would have been able to observe about him? They would have seen this man standing before him, them and they would have said, Here he is, our high priest, our mediator between us and God. And one day he's going to die. And that was a flaw. And Aaron did die, did he not? And when he died, his son Eleazar took his place as high priest and he wore those priestly garments and then later on he died too. And so on and so on and so on. Don't you think that the fact that there was a continual succession of high priests made it pretty obvious that they didn't yet have the one true perfect high priest, which is ideally what you would want in order to make this system work. But here's what's so amazing. What's so amazing is that a thousand years before Jesus Christ even came to this, to this earth, the Holy Spirit inspired David to write these words in Psalm 110 and in verse 4. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so God's intention, despite this humongous fall in the Levitical priesthood, was to prepare a perfect high priest, one in which death's grip could not hold, but who would live forever to make intercession between God and man, and that person was and is Jesus Christ. But you know, the fact that, he, that this was a dying man in Aaron and all the other high priests, that wasn't the only reason why the Levitical priesthood was so imperfect. It was also imperfect because of the character of the men in these roles, right? I mean, these priests, they, they were sinners. 
Aaron was a sinner. We all know the story of the golden calf in Exodus chapter 32. All down the line, the high priests themselves committed sins before God. So think about how that must have been just so concerning for those Israelites for a man to mediate for, between me and God and he's basically saying, I, a sinner, am making intercession on behalf of these sinners. A little bit cringeworthy, isn't it? I mean, when you, when you really think about it. And that's why before Aaron could go in and make atonement for the sins of Israel, he had to make atonement for his own sins, just as Eleazar and all the rest of them would. But in the case of Jesus, he did not begin his term as high priest until after his death, and then he rose from dead, the dead to never die again, made a high priest forever after, or after the order of Melchizedek, and he never had to make atonement for his sins because he had no sins. Our Lord was, was completely sinless. He was perfect. And that's why back in Hebrews chapter 4 and in verse 16, the writer could tell us, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In Jesus, our true high priest, we can have confidence, brethren, that our sins are forgiven. We can have confidence that our prayers are heard. We can have confidence that mercy will be extended by virtue of the character and the eternal life of the one who intercedes for us. You see the point? Why on earth, if I'm a Jew, would I reject a high priest who is obviously far more superior to the high priest of old? I mean, it's, it's silly to think about it, but that was their temptation. And then there's the tabernacle to consider, uh, which he begins talking about in chapters 8 and 9. Now, if you were a priest coming into the holy place, think about this. You're a spiritually minded priest, and you're standing there in the holy place. What would be on your mind as you're staring at that veil right before your eyes? I think maybe what would have been on my mind is, <laughs> there's that veil, and right on the other side is God. The presence of God. And if you're a spiritually minded priest, you might be thinking, boy, I would love to go back there and just to be right there in God's presence. But you couldn't. Never. You could never go back there as long as that dispensation lasted. You were forbidden. No ordinary priest could go in there. Only the high priest could go in there, and that was only once a year on the Day of Atonement. So think about that. But then think about also what the tabernacle must have looked like the very day that it was set up for the first time. Have you ever thought about the fact when they built that thing that Moses goes into so much detail in the book of Exodus explaining that as ornate and as beautiful and as brand new that that would have been, have you ever thought about the fact that you could have walked around it and you could have found a tear? You could have found a scratch, a defect, a fault. You could have found something wrong with it. The reason you could have done this is because the earthly tabernacle was decaying from the first day that it was erected. It was corruptible, just like we are. And so it could not last forever. And quite frankly, it was never intended to last forever. But now, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5 tells us that we have become priests of God and now we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens and doesn't have to worry about only getting to enter the most holy place once a year no, He lives there. 
Our high priest, Jesus Christ, is always there in the presence of God making intercession for us. He lives there in the most holy place. And not only that, but he has told us that one day we are going to join him right there in the presence of God. And so why would we give up? this greater and more perfect tabernacle for a corruptible one. It sounds like uh, something foolish to give up that kind of destiny that we have waiting for us. You know, the Old Testament tabernacle, uh, sometimes we don't think about it like this, but the tab- that tabernacle in the Old Testament, that was never the real tabernacle. It was only a model, and it could never do what the real tabernacle can do. But we have an eternal tabernacle, brethren, waiting for us. And this high priest that we serve, Jesus Christ, is granting us privileges that high Old Testament high priest never could. Why would we go back? Why would we give that up? And then there were the sacrifices. How many total sacrifices from beginning to end do you suppose were offered in the Old Testament? Is there even a number for it? Somebody once told me that, I know y'all know Google, the website, but isn't a Google a one followed by a hundred zeros? You think they offered a Google sacrifices? Maybe not that many, uh, but it was a lot, right? Millions? Billions? I mean, there's no way to comprehend a number. All the sacrifices that Solomon offered when the temple was built just, just boggles the imagination. So just imagine the perception viewed by the people over the years as they, as they counted or witnessed all these countless animals being sacrificed every single day. You know, the only conclusion that could have logically been drawn from that is the same as the ones we've already made. Surely the ultimate sacrifice had not yet arrived. And yet when Jesus died on the cross, He supplies us, or supplied us, with a sacrifice whose worth can never be exhausted or diminished, accomplishing what the blood of bulls and goats never could. And if we have that kind of sacrifice that came from heaven, how could we give that up and go back to the blood of bulls and goats? How could we give up that sacrifice for anything else? I mean, it doesn't matter if the subject we're talking about is Judaism or not. How could we give up the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, brethren, for anything? That's mostly what the Hebrew writer is talking about in the first ten and a half chapters of this book. And he he logically makes his point, does he not? But now what he's going to do, and we're going to wrap up the lesson considering these points, what he's going to do now is he's going to try to pierce our hearts by asking us to practically consider the faith and the perseverance of those great Bible characters of old. And I want to just look at three of them in Hebrews chapter 11, just three of them, and then the lesson is going to be yours. I want to first uh, ask you to turn to Hebrews 11 verse 7. And I want to consider Noah. Hebrews 11 and verse 7 tells us this about Noah. By faith, Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. You've got to imagine what it must have been like for everybody to be going about their daily business, doing whatever it is that they wanted to do, and Noah is out there building this gigantic boat. You got to imagine that the mockings, I mean, the, uh, the scorn that he must have gotten. And he's building this big boat, but he's doing it because God warned him about things that he had not yet seen that was going to occur during his lifetime. And so Noah walked by faith and not by sight. And you know what that tells us about Noah that 
that he did that? It tells us that it was a choice. Noah made a choice. And it was the same choice that everyone else had because Peter tells us in one of his epistles that Noah was also during that time a preacher of righteousness. And because that generation had the same choice whether to live for God or to live for themselves, Noah stands proof for why they stood condemned. And so the lesson for us, brethren, is when we make our choice, as most of us here have, are we going to stand by that choice? Are we going to stand by the decision that we made to follow Christ? Are we going to stand firm and are we going to stand steadfast during our trials as we build our foundation for eternity? Or are we going to go back? Or are we going to give up? Are we going to stand for Christ when the world mocks us as it no doubtedly was mocking Moses? Are we going to stand for Christ when the world laughs at us for doing so? Are we going to go back on our choice? Noah didn't. You see the point? We respect Noah. He's one of the first Bible characters we teach our children because we want our children to understand, here's a guy, look what he did in the midst of all that adversity. Here's a guy worth respecting. And the Hebrew writer is telling us, if you respect him, Make the same choice that he did. Don't go back. Don't give up. He never went back. Not in 120 years of building that ark did he ever give up. And I think the thing we need to think about, brethren, is we respect knowing. If we respect that determination and that, that zeal and that perseverance to go through all those years doing something that must have looked so silly and so stupid to the rest of the world, if we respect that choice, we likewise won't give up. And then there's Abraham. In verse 8 of Hebrews 11, we read that by faith Abraham, when he was called, he obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. You know, when Abraham began his journey of faith, this tells, text tells us he had no idea where that journey of faith was going to take him. God didn't tell him where he was going, no. You know what Abraham had to do when he was called? He had to do the same thing that you and I had to do. He had to forsake his old life, and he had to do it by faith. You know, some of us, when we became Christians, we had no idea where Christianity was going to take us, did we? Some of us had to make drastic changes in our lives, did we not? Just like Abraham. I preached in South Africa um, amongst the Zulu brethren back in 2002 for the first time. I've been back since, but... Um, uh, I was with a, a preacher that worked down there in a little town called Richards Bay. It's in northeastern South Africa. And uh, one Sunday morning, uh, we were going to worship in a library uh, with some, some brethren that had a church there. And before the service, there was a young girl, probably 16, 17 years old, that walked into the building. And she had a busted nose, a couple black eyes. I mean, she, she looked like somebody had just really put her through the ringer. And I leaned over to, to the guy I was with, Scott, and I said, Scott, what happened to that young girl? Uh, well, what had happened was she had just obeyed the gospel, I think about two or three days before. And she went home and she told her parents what she had done, that she was forsaken the Zulu religion for Christianity. And her parents beat her. And when she would not relent, her parents brought in some men from their Zulu tribe who beat her some more, and they raped her. And when she wouldn't relent, and when she stayed true to Christ, they kicked her out of the house and said, we never want to see you here again. And she moved in with brethren, who then became her family. 
You think we got it hard? You think she was ever tempted to go back? You think she was ever tempted to give up? I bet she was. She held firm. She remained steadfast. And when I went back to South Africa about four years ago, I asked about her and found out that she's married and she's got kids and she's doing pretty all right. Brethren, Abraham could have gone back if he really wanted to. He could have gone back to the Ur of Chaldea if that's where his heart truly was. God wouldn't have stopped him. But he didn't go back. He stayed the course. Do you respect Abraham for that? Do you respect that young girl in South Africa who had to make probably a more difficult choice than the majority, if not all of us, have ever had to make relative to our faith? And you think about some of the things here that tempt us to go back, how we explode those kind of things, and then think about that young girl and what she had to give up, and she did not go back. Do you admire people like that? You do, don't you? It's hard not to admire him. The point is, if, you, if we admire them, don't give up. Don't go back. That's the purpose of these characters in Hebrews 11. That's the purpose of characters like that young girl in South Africa. If we respect them, if we're going to be followers of that kind of faith, then brethren, likewise, we can't give up and we can't go back. We've got to press on just as much as they were. Abraham didn't go back because he was looking for a city that had foundations and he found it. And he went through countless trials and he pressed on and he didn't give up. And then there's Moses, um, who in Hebrews 11, verse 24, tells us, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. None of us will ever know what it was like to be Moses growing up in Pharaoh's house with, with all the luxuries that must have come with sophisticated living. And yet he gave up everything that men count of value, and because he gave it up, he became a giant of faith. Why did Moses make a choice that involved so much prolonged struggle and adversity for him? The text tells us he was looking ahead. Right? And you know what you're not doing when you're looking ahead? You ain't looking back. That's the point. Moses looked ahead. He was looking to the reward. Moses was mindful of the glories yet to come. And that's what he leaned on during all those trials that he underwent during the wilderness. Do we admire Moses? Do we respect him for what he did? And for the awesome, awesome example that we have in him? Well, then the question is, will we follow his example and will we look ahead instead of looking back? He didn't give up. He didn't go back. And neither should we go back. Uh, folks, the, one of the biggest points of Hebrews chapter 11 is that there was always an easy way available to these men and women of faith. All those struggles, all those tortures, they would have stopped if they would have merely denounced their faith, but they did not give up. Again, we think our, our, our trials are so tough and we can't handle them, but we're told that these men, they resisted to the point of bloodshed, just like that young girl in South Africa. Try being spread over a table and sawed in half unless you denounce your faith. That's what Jewish history tells us happened to Isaiah at the hands of Manasseh. Not in the Bible, but history tells us that, Jewish history. Try having rocks thrown at your body until you die 
like Scripture tells us happened to Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Try being dragged to death. That's what church history tells us happened to Mark by the people of Alexandria. Try being led down a road and having to carry a tree that you created with your own hands, only to have your hands and feet nailed to them, as the Lord did. And yet even our Lord didn't go back, did He? And you know what the Hebrew writer tells us in chapter 12 was the reason why our Lord didn't go back? Because like Moses, He was looking ahead. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 tells us, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Here it is right here. Who for the joy set before Him. See where He was looking? He wasn't looking back, was He? He was looking ahead. Who for the joy set before Him. What did He do? He endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself, so that you too will not grow weary and lose heart. We think that we have had it so rough, brethren. We think our trials are so bad. We have nothing on these guys. And they held steadfast. What we have in this letter to the Hebrews is not only the command to not give up, but we've got a whole lot of incentive on why we should not give up too, don't we? And that's why this book was written. Not just to Jews. No. This book was written for us so that we would never, ever go back. Never, ever give up what we have laid hold of. Brethren, that's my final admonition to you tonight. Don't give up. Don't let the failure of brethren cause you to give up. Don't let church troubles cause you to give up. Don't let things in your personal life cause you to give up. Don't let let a death cause you to give up. Don't let health difficulties cause you to give up. You fight and you fight strong and you fight hard. You fight to get to Jesus. You fight like that man that was lowered through the roof that couldn't get around the crowds. That's how far you fight. You fight like little Zacchaeus who climbed the tree just so he could see Jesus. You fight as someone once said like you're that third monkey trying to get on the ark. That makes sense. May nothing in this dying world ever come between us and our Maker and Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Live a faith worth imitating because when the tough gets going, the tough get going. If you are here tonight and if you are a Christian, if you have ever been tempted to give up and to go back to things that are so infinitely inferior to what we have in Jesus Christ, we would certainly not want you to leave here tonight with that temptation still there. If you need to come forward and make a public confession or if you just need prayers of the saints here so we might strengthen your hands to walk a a more resolved and resolute life with Christ, we would love to help you tonight. And if you need to obey the gospel, we would certainly ask that you not leave here tonight without giving that a strong consideration. Whatever we can do for you tonight by way of encouragement or strengthening you, please come forward and let us know how we can help while we stand, while we sing.